0: I'm, I'm really not the most profound in terms of understanding the biblical languages, but I am going to make a point about the Hebrew, so it, it, will, it will actually be coming. Um, let's, uh, let's see, turn together to Deuteronomy 10. It's page 155 of the Pew Bible. We're going to pick it up in verse 12. So Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You, above all peoples, as you are this day, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Please uh, pray with me. Almighty God, we do ask that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears to hear and receive this word from you. In your light do we see light, and in your truth find freedom. Holy Spirit, wield the gospel in our hearts this morning and help us to see and know and love our Savior Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, um, you know, as you've gathered, I work with international students, and I've, you know, in the last 18 months been reading a lot learning about what international student ministry looks like as I engage with students and I stumbled across this article about a student who was preparing to return home to his home country after so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. See, Israel's meant to be a display people. They're meant to be a display people to these nations looking on to see, look at their God is so near to them. Look at how he acts through them. Look at his righteousness and his laws that produce flourishing and life. That's what God wants his people to be. So this morning in Deuteronomy 10, we're going to hone in on verses 18 and 19, this command to love the sojourner, the widow, and the fatherless. But I want you to to see some of that context around verses 18 and 19, see where we're going. And we're going to dig in and see that these two verses, Deuteronomy 10, 18 and 19, this is not just kind of some rabbit trail in Scripture, but this shows kind of the very heart of Christianity. And, and, and it, it begs us to ask the question of us as a church, how will the people of God respond to God's grace? How will they live when they are blessed? Will they only be people who have grace going to them, or will they also have grace going through them to the people around them? And I th- I thought about um, a professor that Chuck and I had, something he would say all the time that I've never been able to shake. And he would say, what goes deepest to the heart goes widest to the world. What goes deepest to the heart goes widest to the world. What does that mean? It just means that whatever you love has to come out. Whatever you actually love, it goes out to the world. I mean, think about that barbecue place you love. I don't know which one it is but you love that barbecue place. You want everyone to go there. You want to take your friends there. Or you want them to cheer with you for the Dallas Cowboys later today. Or you're showing everyone pictures of your grandkids on your phone. You didn't take a five-week Sunday school class on how to share pictures of your grandkids to your friends and your neighbors. You love them, and it comes out. You love them, and it goes out out. And that's what we'll see God is doing with his people this morning. So we're going to see in these two verses how the reality of God's rescue impacts the heart first, how then it impacts the community second, and then how it extends to the world. So first, the heart. We'll look at Deuteronomy 10 again and see in these first four verses, 12 to 16, you see that The context here is the context of the circumcision of the heart. The command in verses 18 and 19 to love the sojourner, love the widow, love the fatherless, that it it has something to do with our hearts. And this kind of shows that, again, God's not after just behavior modification, but he wants to change our hearts. He wants to change us from the inside out. And it's important to see that right away, Because God is not saying to Israel, what makes you my people is if you do these things. That's not it. He's not saying, what makes you my people is if you have these external markers only. If you have circumcision, then that makes you my people. No, circumcise your hearts, he says. And he shows them that what makes you my people is my grace and my rescue of you is what marks you. As my people. And see, the commands of God, they're always, always, always rooted in God's rescue. I mean, just think about the Ten Commandments. What's the first thing God says in the Ten Commandments? It's not, you shall have no other gods before me, it's, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery have no other gods before me. I've rescued you. I'm the God who rescued you. Don't worship anybody else. (laughs) It's rooted in his rescue. And we see this, you know, clearly over and over in the New Testament as well, right? If there's kids in here, I see a few kids, this is the most important part of the sermon. So when your parents ask you afterwards, what'd you learn at church? This is what you can tell them. I'm giving you the answer. In 1 John, it says... That we love because God first loved us. That's all you have to remember. <laughs> we love because God first loved us. That's 1 John four nineteen, Or just take Ephesians, for example. You have three chapters of doctrine, of rich explanation of what Jesus Christ has done and what God has done before the foundations of the world to choose a people for himself, to love them, There's no command in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians. There's only one. There's one. And then after that, in Ephesians 4 through 6, it's walk in a manner that's worthy of this calling, how God's rescued you by grace. Now this is what marriage looks like. Now this is what parenthood looks like. Now this is what job life is like. This is what church life looks like in light of grace and mercy. It's always a response to God's rescue. Look at verse 13 in Deuteronomy 10, where we see God telling his people, I want you to obey for your good. That I have your interests at heart and I want you to obey me. Because God doesn't care about the what only. He cares about the why. And you're the same way, actually. Did you know that? You care about why and not just the what. I'll give you an example if you're a parent. How would you feel if your kid obeyed you, if your kid obeyed you, and then they said to you, Mom, Dad, do you love me now? Their obedience would actually be painful in a way. What would you say? You'd say, no, I I love you. I love you. And that's why I want you to do what I say. You don't have to earn my love. I'm for you. I'm setting before you these rules and statutes for your good. I have your good in mind. And so we don't want to just think or say or just take what God's doing here. He's not just saying, do these things because I said so. Could, I could, as a dad, I could say, kids, do this because I said so. That's fair. I have the authority to do that. But it's also because I love you. And I encourage you, if you're in the midst of parenthood, to think about that, even how you talk with your kids. I want you to do this, be- yes, because I said so, but also because I love you. And that's what we see how God's character is in Deuteronomy 10. And I know some of this is, might be hard because you might be thinking, well, my dad wasn't like that. Or maybe he wasn't even around. Maybe you don't know experientially what it's like to have a father who, who does love like this. Maybe growing up, your parents' love actually was conditional. I read this novel uh, earlier this year where a mother is talking to her daughter, who's about six years old, and the daughter says something kind of rude, pretty snide, but she regrets it right away um, and wishes she could take it back. But the the mom, what the mom says to her, to her daughter, she says, do you know what happens when you hurt people? When you hurt people, they begin to love you a little less. That's what careless words do. They make people love you a little less. And the rest of this girl's life, she lives believing every time I disappoint my mom, she loves me a little less. Every time I I mess up, my mom loves me a little less. But that's not true of God. God keeps his promises. God's love is steadfast love. We see that over and over again in in the Old Testament. This hesed Steadfast love. That's not dependent on who we are. It's dependent on who God is and on his promises. Look at verse 15 of our passage where he says, That the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all people, as you are to this day, I have set my affection on you. I have chosen you, God says. That doesn't go away. And we know this from the cross, right? We know this from Jesus. That God demonstrates his love for us when we were at our worst. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is what, this is, again, this is the thing that has to get into your heart. This is what has to shape you on the inside. John Owen, the great Puritan, once said that the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the father the greatest unkindness you can do to him is to not believe that he loves you the greatest sorrow you can lay on god is to obey him and say god do you love me now father do you love me now no his steadfast love is sure and we have confidence not in ourselves but in this electing love this sovereign gracious love that I've set my heart on you and chosen you. See, because if you aren't changed then on that heart level and you just are doing stuff, you're doing all the good Christian things, then you're not living for the glory of God according to this passage. You're not actually even obeying according to this passage because you're doing it for the wrong reasons. You could, do, you could love the widow, the sojourner, and the orphan. You could do all these things for them and serve them. And you could do so because you think, I'm better than them. I've, you know, got the resources and the strength to help, you know, these poor, weak, vulnerable people. God's saying, don't do that. Don't think like that. You are the poor, the weak and the vulnerable, who I rescued first, and helped first. And I want that to get into your heart. In Deuteronomy 8, 17, God says this, Beware, lest you say in your heart, okay, there's that heart thing, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. In Deuteronomy 9, it says, Do not say in your heart, It's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land. And then Deuteronomy 9 and 10, Moses reminds the people, hey, remember that whole golden calf episode? That didn't go so well. Pretty much the first thing you did after God rescued you was make an idol. And God didn't forsake you. God didn't love you a little less. He gave even more grace. He remembered his promises and his steadfast love was sure. So why is God telling them this? Again, it's because the temptation is to think it's our righteousness that makes us the people of God. That is because we're better than others or we're more important. That's why God's taking us into the land is to separate us from weak, vulnerable, poor them. And God is saying, no, you were the ones I rescued first. And that has to settle in on your heart. You have to be marked by that kind of love. What makes you my people is not your righteousness. It's my rescue. I'm going to get real practical. (laughs) You know why I think a lot of us look down our nose at others why we look down at maybe the poor and say well if they would just work harder like i did i never got a handout or something like that or we think whether it's just like the little ways we gossip it's all the all the things we do to push people down and push people down and put ourselves up and put ourselves up it's because we don't actually want to deal with ourselves So it's easier then to just keep looking down and puffing ourselves up and pretend that we've got it all together and we need to look down at others just so we can bear to look at ourselves because we're so messed up. We're hiding so much stuff in our hearts but if we can just keep puffing ourselves up and putting others down, we don't have to deal with ourselves but God will not have it. we actually often don't want to admit that we need God's rescue. Even at church, even as Christians, we think the next step is to show it's about me and my righteousness. That we're the ones who care about whatever the thing is, about missions or about Christian education or about this awesome ministry in this part of the city or in that ministry in this part of the city. And God is saying, I don't want your obedience if I don't first have your heart. Circumcise your heart. I don't want the things you do. I want you. I want you. Not your service. Not your stuff first. I'm in the business of rescuing sinners. Remember what Jesus said in Mark 2? Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. But see, then God working on our own hearts, that's not enough. Because what's happening in Deuteronomy 10 is he's not just addressing a bunch of individuals, he's addressing the people. He's addressing this, this people before they go into the land. He wants the reality of his rescue to impact us together on this kind of communal level, this corporate level. Because again, it's not just, okay. I've been impacted in this deep way, so I'll go serve at the soup kitchen, and then you go help David at RUFI at UTD, and then you go help at this ministry, and I'll help here. All those things are good. I welcome you to come help at, at UTD. But again, God is wanting to change the community because it's If you do that, if all you do is kind of this individual ministry, then you don't have to ever change what you do together. I wish we had, I call it a Y-E-S-V, a y'all, English Standard Version, because then you could see some of the dynamics at play. Because in our verses uh, 18 and 19, the word you is actually in the plural. It should be y'all. So it's saying, y'all love the sojourner, therefore, for y'all were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God is wanting the entire community to engage in caring for the vulnerable, for the orphan, the widow, and the fatherless. He wants the vulnerable to be incorporated into the community. Not just one person goes and helps them. He wants the community to welcome them in. And you see that God's wanting the the dynamics of the community to change. And you read things in Leviticus, like Leviticus 23, where it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. See, God's saying, I want the economics of this community to be different and to change in light of my rescue in my commands leave olives leave grapes leave grain on the edge for the disadvantaged and the poor to come have a share of he wants the way they have their wallets work to change together we're listening to leviticus 19 when he says when a stranger sojourns with you in your land you shall not do him wrong you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. If we just think, well, this is just some people's job in our church to go do these kinds of things, then I don't think you have to feel the grittiness of this. You don't have to change anything, and you can stay comfortable. But if this is something for us to do together... Then as one commentator said, the church, church can't be just a casual hobby. It will be costly. And again, this ties into what God's doing on our hearts. Because if the church has among itself the poor, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, then it cuts against that mentality that we have to have it all together. And that everybody has to be okay. Because if the brokenness of the world is not just out there, but it's in here, it changes us. And I know many of you know experientially what this is like to know someone or to be a widow or to know what it's like to be fatherless or think about like a refugee, like all those three kinds of people all are starting off with a sad story. But if we bring that in and welcome that in, it allows the church to shine the light of the gospel into the darkness. And in a way, we can bring the darkness in because we know the darkness can never beat the light Psalm 139 says that even the darkness is not dark to our God. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. The darkness can never beat the light. It only takes a tiny little match to light a darkened room. The match never loses. But we have so much more than a match. We have the light of the world. We have Jesus Christ. We're united to him by faith. And what does he say he wants the church to be? In Matthew 5, he says, You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill, a city that cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And that word, you, right there, that's in the plural too. Y'all. Y'all let your light shine before men, that they may see y'all's good work and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That y'all do this together and let that light shine. So how do you do this? How do you then together as a community do this? Well, let me share a story, gives kind of an example of what this, what this looks like or what this could mean. Um, I read in a book a story, it's a true story, about a professor named Nora Ellen Gross. And she was researching hereditary deafness in Massachusetts um, at Martha's Vineyard, you know, where all the lighthouses are, a great vacation spot in New England. Um, In the 1600s, there were people coming from this certain spot of England to Martha's Vineyard. And they had a high rate of hereditary deafness. So they came, they settled on Martha's Vineyard, and by the 19th century, about one out of every 25 people were deaf on the island, or on Martha's Vineyard. Um, and in some spots, it was a higher rate than that. And what you would expect to happen, if you think about how society works, how most communities work, is you would think they would make the handicapped adapt to the life of the non-handicapped. But that's not what happened at Martha's Vineyard. So Nora Gross, in doing her research, she was interviewing an older resident about all this, um, about she asked, you know, what do the hearing people think of the deaf people? And he says, well, we don't think anything of them. They're just like everybody else. So, like, okay, I, I know that. But I mean, surely it was, it's hard to communicate. Surely it's difficult when people are having to read lips or write things down. And he said, no, no, you see, everyone here speaks sign language. And she thought, okay, maybe every, all the family members can speak sign language for these people? He said, no, 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 no. Everyone here speaks sign language. And she found out it was true, that everyone in town, everyone in Martha's Vineyard learned how to speak sign language so that those who were, would have otherwise been on the outside could fully be brought in and participate in the life of the community. And what happened is by the people disadvantaging themselves for the sake of those on the outside, their lives were changed. That everyone who learned sign language, you know, like the kids would be playing with each other behind the teacher's back and playing games. That when they would be um, working together on a field, they could look through a telescope and sign to each other while they did work. When they were out fishing and the storm picked up and they couldn't hear each other, they could still sign to each other working on the boat. That when people got sick or they got elderly and they had trouble communicating they could still sign to each other. And the people, by disadvantaging themselves, their lives and their community was changed for the better. It was for their good. And see, that's what God is wanting his church to do. That's what he's wanting to do, to to welcome in those on the outside and change together for the sake of those who are on the outside. God's saying, when you do that, you are walking in step with me. That that's what I'm like. That that's what I do. And so I want my people to be shaped together to welcome in those who are on the outside. Those who are vulnerable. So we see how God's rescue, his redemption, it changes us on a heart level. And then it changes us together and it extends, right? It goes to the world. That's what he wants. Now why why would you think that from Deuteronomy 10? How could we conclude that this is supposed to extend even further than just the community? Well, first, in verses 18 and 19, when it talks about the sojourner, that's a dead giveaway. That God doesn't want this just to be about the nation of Israel, about this people, but he wants, again, to bring in people who are not a part of the nation. These strangers, these aliens, it could be translated as foreigner or immigrant. God commanding Israel welcome in the foreigner, again, is reminding the people of what we read in Deuteronomy 4, that this isn't some compound I'm taking you to, to just seclude yourselves from everybody else, but bring them in, these people who aren't like you. And you also see in Deuteronomy 10, these, these references to God's promise to Abraham, right? So if you look at verse 15, it kind of reminds us this. I know we read this verse, but look at it again. The Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all people. And look at verse 22 it says, Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. See, God is, is, is saying here, Yes, I want you to remember my rescue, but also remember my promise, remember my covenant. Remember God's covenant with Abraham. Remember his call of Abraham. Remember he said, look, Abraham, at the stars. So shall your offspring be. And then we see, oh, this is happening now. Israel is as numerous as the stars in the sky. God's promises are coming to fruition. But something is still yet to come. What we mentioned earlier, that you would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That that's where I'm taking you, to remember my promise, that I'm wanting you to become a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And then, how does Israel do? They fail. They fail. Right? You read Joshua, you read Judges, you're like, oh, this is not going well. They don't obey God. Even at the end of Deuteronomy, God predicts this, tells them this. And then you see throughout Israel's history this roller coaster, this, these ups and downs of following God and turning away, ignoring God, rejecting Him, and then coming back. You see, for example, in the prophets how instead of loving the sojourner, remembering that they were sojourners, they start to oppress the sojourner. And this weird thing happens where Israel starts to look more like Egypt than the rescued people of God. That they start to, in a way, act like Pharaoh. And they're they're failing. Uh, I'll give you just one example in Ezekiel 22. And this is all over the prophets, but in Ezekiel 22, it says, The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. And so God takes them into exile. He takes his people into exile and they long for another exodus, a new exodus. And then it comes, but not the way they thought it would. Jesus Christ comes to deliver his people out of bondage, out of slavery, and release them from a greater Pharaoh, from sin, whose wages are death. And Jesus Christ comes as the one who truly disadvantages himself for the sake of the outsider. He becomes vulnerable himself for the vulnerable by going to a cross, becoming poor, becoming afflicted, to die and to take our place. He is condemned for our failure. This Jesus who loved the widow, who loved the orphan, who loved the sojourner, who ate and drank with sinners, who had all the power in the universe as God. Yet he left his home of heaven and he became a sojourner. And he then accomplished what Israel was meant to be and meant to do. He fulfills the story of Israel as true Israel, that he, as Paul says in Galatians 3.16, he's the offspring of Abraham through whom all the nations are blessed. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ that the nations are blessed through Israel, what Israel was meant to be. And that's why what goes deepest to the heart goes widest to the world, because the gospel, this good news of the rescue that God has done in Jesus Christ When that goes into our hearts, it has to overflow to the world. And the world is right here. We live in this, like, wild, crazy time where you have, you know, international students from over 100 countries down the street. You have immigrants here coming from these places that are hard to get to with the gospel. You have refugees fleeing and yet coming here from nations where The gospel, sometimes they don't even have the opportunity to hear the gospel if they wanted to. And yet God is bringing them here. You think of all these great, you know, missionary movements in the 18th, 19th century. And what would they think of us when the world is in our backyard? God is saying, you can be my people to reach the world here in Frisco. Who are the vulnerable here? Who is kept on the outside in this city? Who's neglected? Who needs that invitation to just have a meal or a cup of coffee or tea? Who's left on the outside that y'all, y'all can bring in? Because you remember that that's how Christ brought you in. You know, I mentioned Ephesians earlier about that there's one command in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, there's one command. It's in chapter 2, where it says, remember. That's the command. Remember. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from the commonwealth of Israel. And strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. See, Christian, Jesus Christ has welcomed you in that you were a stranger, and at the cost of his own blood, welcomed you into God's family. And then week after week, he invites you here. Can you believe it? He invites you to his table, because he set his heart and his affection on you, and says, come and eat with me. Let's pray together. Oh, God, please, by the power of your spirit, work in us to be a welcoming people the way you have welcomed us. Help us, Lord, to remember that we were on the outside without hope, without any even desire for you, and yet you broke through You shed your light on us. You spoke into our heart, let there be light. And now we have light to see the glory of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray that you would draw us even closer to yourself this morning. Let your word continue to have an effect on us even tomorrow morning, even on Monday. And help this church, Lord, Christ Community Church in Frisco, to be your people, to be your display people to the world that's here. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.